0: What worried me was the fact that, hey, Every time I start a business, it seems to be some sort of financial crisis. So the first one was KL Classifieds. So we had the Asian financial crisis. And then I was with Job Street. We had those dot-com crisis. I started BFM and then 11 days later, Lehman went down. So here's a tip, guys. Every time I start a new business, you can, you know, just um, sell your shares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call it a market signal. What worried me the most was the fact that, again, this was KL Classified. You have global financial crisis, people not buying advertisements, etc. I had a house in Malaysia and I sold it just in case that I had to put in more money. So I've asked all the investors at the time, to always put $5 million in first, but reserve another $2.5 in case something happens. So I sold it so that I can pay for if BFM needed the cash. But thankfully, that crisis did not impact Malaysia so hard. The property market went roaring, man, after that in 2009. And I'm like going, oh no, here again. If I had waited another two months, the property would be in four hundred thousand ringgit more. You know? It's like, ah, here we go again. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 24 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer Lingya and today's guest is Malik Ali, best known for founding BFM 89.9, Kale's premier business radio channel and FireLife, Malaysia's first online life insurance technology company. Malik Ali was once a lawyer working at Ellen Over in London during the Canary Wharf bankruptcy, but he soon left to pursue his first love of business by first completing his MBA at Harvard, where he was classmates with Cheryl Sandberg, before returning to Kuala Lumpur for a stint as a consultant at Boston Consulting Group. Soon after, he began his first startup, Kale Classifieds, but unfortunately hit the financial crisis that landed him 300,000 ringgit in debt. Malik found a way out of that and went on to work at Jobstreet, Maxis, and Yahoo!, before finding both BFM 89.9 and FireLife. Malek doesn't hold back in sharing the realities of his journey as a founder, which are full of peaks and valleys. And I can't wait to share his story with you. So are you ready? Let's go.
0: Welcome to the So This Is My Why
1: podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi Malik, thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. I would love to start with your childhood. And I understand you grew up in the late 1960s in Kampung in Kuala Lumpur. So, what was that
0: like I don't for know you? If you been that out. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> research found that out. <laughs> There's brilliant research. So, I, actually, I started in a place called Sam Mansion until I was about three or four years old. I was probably conceived out of wedlock, so my parents married, but it was a very short marriage. So, I stayed in this apartment called Sam Mansion for a while, where my father came over once every two nights to visit me. He had a first wife. My mom was a second wife. Looking back, I think it was a little bit traumatic because you see your dad one day and then you dread the morning that he leaves. And then that evening is going to be horrible because you don't have your dad around. Then that anticipation of him coming the next day is fantastic again. So you go on through this sort of cycle. I don't know how that affected me, but that was highs and lows. But my parents divorced when I was about five years old. Again, put in a slightly traumatic position of having to choose between my parents. They put it to me, a five-year-old child oh, as to wow. whom I would like to quit. I mean, mum took care of me. My mom was an actress before she married my father. Bangsa one, they call it. They used to go to various villages and, and act. And she had a former husband who was both their second marriages. And I was asked to choose. And mom was always a nagger. So she's raising me. So you always wanted the person who came into your life once every two days kind of thing. So it was a natural thing for me just to opt for my father very, very easily. And I never saw my father cry. It was like, you know, like, yes, of course you, dad. So my mom took that pretty badly. And so I went to Kamu to live with my stepmother and my father. And it was a house just actually by the golf club. My father, his businesses started to succeeding at that time. It didn't before. When I was three years old, he was walking the streets of KL wondering how to buy powdered milk for me. So his first business failed badly. It was in construction. But I think by the time I was six, seven years old, he managed to do one successful business, We're leasing a golf club property off of RSGC, Royal Sound Golf Club. And that was where I had most of my sort of six to 12 years old childhood. So It was a very lonely childhood. I had half brothers and sisters, but most of them were studying overseas at the time. So I was pretty much the only child in the house for a long time. So the next one above me was probably about 16 years old. The oldest one's about 21 years older.
1: I understand that you also tag along with your dad a lot. He was doing all kinds of things like a career service franchise yeah. in Saudi Arabia, distributing deals yeah. with patronas. So you went along as a child?
0: I was his brother's sister. So I answered the phone calls. I was probably about seven, eight years old. And yeah, when we went to hotel rooms, he'll say, Malik, can you just answer the calls for me? I say, oh yeah. Hello, uh, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of thing. So it was fun. It was the golden years for him. And he was traveling a lot, meeting a lot of French principals. France was his playground and I remember going with him, really enjoying that. It's nice to see how my father mingled business and pleasure. And what during those days were phone calls and meeting people and long lunches nice food the deals were done over three hour lunches i'm like wow this is not bad is (laughs) Is it like that i'm like oh gosh little did i know and then after we would go to a bakery a patisserie or something like that and do our own thing so i saw the nice side of business during that time and remember this was the 70s so we were very very privileged I mean, going on a plane, I remember it took about six stops to go wow. to France. You, know, you went to Colombo, you went to Muscat, Rome, and, and then you end up in Paris six stops later. And I seem to remember as a kid, I remember that we were somewhere in Colombo, I think, and then the newspaper fell onto our lap and said something like Saigon Falls to the Northern Vietnamese at the time. This was sort of the hazy memories I had as a kid. It was almost like that post-war, Cold War, communist versus the Western world, or the Americans rather, in Southeast Asia, that kind of thing.
1: Do you feel that you were inclined to follow your dad's footsteps because he was showing you all the glamour and the fun?
0: Yeah, I think to a certain extent. I'm not a sit-still kind of person. I think that came from that. After a while, my brother came back from his university studies and worked as an engineer with MAS for a while. But then he joined the family business too. He joined my father. So the three of us. So he will be talking to my brother about business and I'll be sitting at the back of the car listening. Sometimes bored, sometimes interested. I'm the third person. (laughs) I'm the kid at the back. One big thing I've learned is that my father was a really nice guy, very likable. And even he admitted to himself, he's not a very good businessman because he was quite naive. He's very trusting of people. And being, in a way... Way, sort of stuck by people. So at the time I didn't realize it, but I remember thinking, why gosh, this guy is so persuasive. There was this Australian guy, absolutely amazing salesman, promised you the world. I was completely taken, just like my brother and my father. My mouth was a gate and you wanted to go in and go, yes, yes, of course. This was a slimming center franchise. I mean, we were fast forwarding a few years, but because we got hit hard by that particular venture, I guess to a young tweeny or teenager at the time, this was like, wow, this happened to my dad. This happened to my brother. And I was there. I was there when he was giving the sales pitch. So therefore, there are people like that around the world. And so I learned. I learned vicariously through my father and my brother. I still trust people a lot. But there is a voice in me that says, okay, we'll take it at face value for the time being. But always protect yourself in terms of, like, if this goes wrong, what could go wrong? There's always that element behind all those years from seeing my father, and my brother, being out-negotiated, fooled, whatever it is.
1: So the recession hit in 1985 and the following year you ended up going to the UK to do law. Was the recession something that really impacted your family? Like what was that? No, no. That was
0: 1985. We were setting up all these slimming centres, not just in Malaysia. I mean, we sold the franchise in Japan and Singapore and for each franchise it was about a million ringgit or something like that. As I said, this is the mid 80s now. When the recession happened, no one had money to go to a slimming centre to slim down. So the business collapsed and all those franchises were gone. And actually, I'll be honest with you, I don't think my father ever truly recovered from that. So he had a couple of successful business ventures, but that venture, from then on, it was just about assets. You have some assets from before. you were just selling one by one, one by one, one by one for the next, I don't know, 15 years until he died. He didn't realize it at the time, but it was downhill from there. I was just about to enter university. It was 1985. I had to come back, apply for the loan, managed to get a loan, which is good. So that sort of put me through university, uh, a small allowance. So yeah, I did my law degree in Bristol University.
1: Was there a reason why you did law as opposed to business administration, for instance?
0: Oh, I, mean, I really want to do economics, actually. That was my first love. But unfortunately, my history teacher, a Ghanaian, I went to international school in Singapore, mm. and a Ghanaian called Charles Engman said to my dad, I've seen Malik during debates, and he's quite good. He should be a lawyer. <laughs> why do people give that kind of advice? <laughs> you know, just because you're good at debating, you should be a lawyer, just because he's good at talking. You should be a lawyer like that. So that idea was, you know, incepted, or inception was made. And my father thought, ah, well like, I think you should do law. And there's a history to it, I guess, because my father actually applied for a scholarship. He was an immigration officer in Singapore when Singapore was a colony. And he applied for a scholarship to do law. And everyone told him that this is just a heads and shoulders interview. They just want to see you, make sure that you're real. But in all respects, you've got the scholarship. So my dad walked in, saw the British colonel officer, and he asked him one question. Sally why do you want to do law? And my father said to me, I'm eventual to desire." he says, I don't know why I said it, but it came from the heart. It just came out. He said, I want to do law because I want to seek independence for Singapore.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, (laughs) there he goes, Mr. Ali, that's the door. So there's your ambition unrequited. So when one teacher comes up to him and says, Hey, your son might be a good lawyer. He just jumped on that and said, Molly, I want you to do law. So I'm like, okay, dad, fine, whatever. It sounds interesting. And let's see what happens. So I just put my first love in economics aside, And that took me on a circuit of about six and a half years. Yeah.
1: So you ended up working in, Allen Overy over in the early nineties in corporate finance. And I understand that you were working on the bankruptcy of Canary Wharf at the time.
0: Well... Put it this way, that was one of the reasons why I'm like, I better go, I better do an MBA. (laughs) (laughs) So I was doing a few things. One was derivatives in the capital markets department. And I remember the 2008 financial crisis, about 18 years earlier, I was like the rookie lawyer looking, what are bonds? We did articles. So you move from department to department. And that was my first thing in the bonds department. So yeah, very corporate. And then I qualified as a solicitor. The partner came in and said, look, Molly, we're on a big deal right now. We have this huge restructuring to do. What is it? Oh, it's the Canary Wharf problem. The Reichman brothers owe money and so on. And we represented the banks. I remember entering that conference room and there were 40 lawyers from our own firm you know it's not even other firms so 40 lawyers from our own firm and some of them were introducing themselves to each other oh hi i'm you know so and so i'm so so we spoke on the phone so i thought this is going to be my life if i were to do this but honestly i've already decided at the time that i was going to go back to my first love which was actually i thought it was economics it is part of but i think it was just about business and economics in general I had already made an application to to do an MBA by then and sort of just waiting for the results. And the results came through by fluke, I think. managed to get into Harvard, which is really like feather in the cap. Also. I remember being completely overjoyed about getting to that business school.
1: So when you applied to the MBA, were you already thinking of, I want to do a startup? Because I understand that you were also very enamored with the UK radio stations like Capital Radio and Laser 558. So was that like an idea of, oh, I want to do business and it might be something radio?
0: Yeah, I always was very interested in radio. So that was one of the options. I used to have a black book where I keep all my ideas of businesses. And I still see some of them recur, even now. And radio was high on the list. But I remember when I was writing the essays to enter these business schools, they did ask you what you wanted to do post-business school. I remember that doing my own thing was not the first on the agenda. And what was my first on the agenda was interesting. I spoke about infrastructure. Hey, I want to get involved in airports in uh-huh. telecommunications. The, all those kind of like big infrastructure areas because I was still thinking in terms of like an economist. So what is good for the country? What is good for Malaysia at the time? We had the North-South Highway come through. That's great, but we need more. We need power plants. We need telecommunications. We need airports. This was 1992. So that was my first thinking. It's actually, hey, why don't I experience the corporate world or a certain area of business first before venturing out on my own? And then came the summer of 1992. Four when I came back, back to Malaysia, and it was a summer break, and I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, there was this thing called the Time Highway Radio. And it was the first private commercial station in Malaysia. And I said, Ooh, maybe this is an interesting one. Again, the inception was then like, okay, I, I was interested in this from the UK. I really enjoyed the radio station in the UK. But in my mind at the time, I was more interested in entertainment stations and so on. Business radio station didn't come to mind.
1: What were the biggest takeaways from your MBA? Do you think that it was a good decision for you to have done it first? Because some people would go to like BCG, then the MBA, Uh, but you did the other way.
0: Yeah, because I wanted to do it in the first place. I really wanted to do business slash economics. So it was to me, (gasps) finally, after six and a (laughs) half years detour, I can go back to what I love. And I loved it. I um, absolutely loved it. Harvard has what you call a case study method. And essentially you're reading cases about people's experiences. The protagonists are going through those experiences. And sometimes those protagonists turn up in class. You don't know them. You see some face there and they are like, oh, okay, who's this? And suddenly they are the protagonists. And so you go through three cases a day. So you get three experiences a day of other people's experiences. So you learn vicariously through them. So I thought that was an an amazing experience because you learn through the eyes of others. I think the best cases were the failures. There was a guy called Dan Bricklin. He invented a spreadsheet, but you don't know Dan Bricklin. No one knows Dan Bricklin. He started a company called Visicalc, which was a predecessor of Lotus123, which is a predecessor of the Excel spreadsheet and Google Sheet, etc. But it was Dan Bricklin who invented it in class of Harvard Business Group. But again, good good learnings. What happened? Shareholder disputes that slowed you down and other publishers came in and got the product out faster. So learnings from that as well, from the failure of Dan Bricklin.
1: Were you never inclined to stay on in the States and work there as opposed to coming back?
0: Yeah, I wanted to. I couldn't. I didn't have enough money to put myself through college. My wife, we were just married. And I needed my wife to work. And it's just tied over that extra 10000 20000 US. Otherwise, i would be scrambling for that. And to do that, I needed a certain type of visa, which doesn't allow me to work afterwards in the US, which is a shame because there was Charles Sandberg, one of our classmates also wrote the business plan for Yahoo.
1: The third oh, employee, uh, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was the internet 1.0 generation. So I would have loved to stay there at least for another three, four years. But th- there we are. Instead, I came Came back to Malaysia with BCG and then started my own classifieds newspaper. And then there's something called the Asian Financial Crisis. There I am watching TV. I was watching Astra at the time. And so here I am crushed by the market, the cash flow problems, my business was failing. And I looked at the TV and there's a guy called Warren Adams, a classmate of mine. I played football with him. Great guy. Very nice guy. And he sold his plan all business to Amazon for 250 million oh, US dollars. Wow. I'm like, huh? Here I was, the Asian Financial Crisis on my shoulders. And there was Warren sort of selling his company to jeff bezos so i'm like wow group for you warren can't happen to a nicer guy but damn i wish i was with you you know
1: and so all these happened because of a startup called Kale classify which you started in 1997 how do you first come upon that idea
0: wherever i go whatever experience i tend to say oh can i do this in malaysia can i do this in southeast asia so there was something called a loot in the UK at the time where people had this newspaper where the paper cost about two pounds, but it was like literally just classifieds and classifieds. And Malaysia had it, but Malaysia had it in something called the Malay Mail. And people bought the Malay Mail because of these classifieds. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's only one real player here. Let's compete with that. So that was the idea for care classifieds. I mean, the only problem is that business is really dependent on people having a certain transaction volume of buying and selling cars and buying and selling property and jobs, etc. But when you have a financial crisis, honestly, the 120 pages of classifieds that Malay Mail had, it whittled down to about 18. You're talking yeah. about 85% drop. Something like now. This is what we're so going nice. through right now. That kind of decline. Under those circumstances, I certainly wasn't the best entrepreneur. Actually. I was still very raw. I had a bit of a inflated view of cost structures. But yeah, in those sort of circumstances, businesses, if, if you succeed during those times, you're one of the very few.
1: So you ended yeah. up 300,000 ringgit in debt, as I understand it. So what was the plan right. to deal with that?
0: The plan was to go to Singapore, work as either a consultant or a corporate guy again, so enough to be able to live as well as pay down the debt. Mark came by and I met Mark Chang, the founder of Jobstreet, whilst I was doing my business and we collaborated on a few things. And Mark found out that my business was failing and Mark swooped in, saying, so like, why did you join me? I'll offer you something like, oh, like 4,000 ringgit or something like that a month. I'm like, oh, right, 4,000 ringgit, I can't pay down this loan at all. And then, interestingly, I got a call a week later and Mark said, let's talk. Let's meet some of the other co-founders of Jobstreet. And there was one meeting, it was a weird meeting because it was very philosophical. What's your goal in life? Kind of like this sort of conversation that we're having now. What motivates you? <sighs> and then finally, this gentleman who is now my business partner, a guy called kay He asked me, Malik, how much do you owe the bank right now? So by sale uh, so I said uh, 200,000 instead of 300,000. He says, okay. I have a suggestion. Why not, if I were to pay off your loan, would you join Mark and help him out and then see what happens? If you leave of your own accord, you have to pay back the loan. If things don't work out and I ask you to leave or Ma asks you to leave, then that's fine. You don't have to pay. it. I think if you can help us with these things and get us some funding for Singapore to expand jobs across Southeast Asia. I'm like, wow, here was someone that was going to erase that big cloud over my head just with one check. And that's what he did. He did that. I was like shocked, but obviously very grateful. Interestingly, it's something I've heard before. And remember I told you before about my father walking down the streets of KL. Yes. Not having money to buy milk. He went to someone and had the same situation. Someone said to him, yeah, Mr. Ali, I'll take over your construction business. I'll take over all the debts. You can just walk away now. It's all right. So wow. history repeats itself. And for relationships like this, it, these are relationships by treasure because they're few and far between.
1: When I first came across this story, I thought, wow, that's such an incredible thing for them to have done. I wondered like, if you were them at the time, would you have made that same
0: offer to yourself? I think Mark needed help. Mark was alone. He had no time. He was just struggling operationally with job street. Then he had a venture capitalist knocking on the door, but Mark didn't have the time to produce a business plan, to negotiate, to put a vision and the growth story together. So that was my first job, to just put a story together. And it's quite natural for me because I was like, oh yeah, classify there's jobs. After jobs, we'll do property. After property, we we'll do cars. It's all the internet and things like that. So we do this sort of things, phase things. We do jobs first, and then we do property next, and then we do cars next. And then we'll dominate the online classifieds world in Southeast Asia. That was the story. So yeah, the venture capitalists already wanted to invest. And it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of a business plan. They just wanted something to bring to their borders. They have something on paper. So I helped with that. I think
1: you brought on Asgaris Stephens, right?
0: Asgari came a bit later on. we like, had a venture capitalists out of Singapore first. And then Asgari came two or three years before Job Street IPO'd. So he was involved in that. That was the Job Street story. Interestingly, the characters that were around at the time, I remember the poster boys in Singapore at the time, at least, was Patrick Grove and Nick Lim. And guess where Patrick Grove is now? So it's <laughs> roughly the same space. He was in a portal space and then he moved into magazines during the tough time. And then he went out to the property classifieds and then and car classifieds and then now here, so it's interesting this sort of formative years of being part of internet 1.0 allows us to all develop at our own pace our own niches and all that in this classified space
1: what do you think it was about JobStreet that allowed it to be so successful because in 2004 like ipo and it was sold for 660 million usd which is a tremendous success
0: yeah even for me i did not believe in that success i couldn't imagine that that could be the case. At the time, we were struggling. When dot-com bubble burst, revenues were down and we had to bring our costs down. So Mark asked me to come back to Malaysia to keep costs down. But I just had my first child and my wife wanted to stay in Singapore. And Mark said to me, Malik, if you are staying in Singapore, we'll have to part ways because we can't afford you to be in Singapore. We need you to be in Malaysia. We need to consolidate. I said, I can't mark family obligations. My wife really wanted to be in Singapore. So we parted ways. i sacrificed some shares of Jobstreet, but I kept some, but it was enough. When Jobstreet listed, it was enough to sort of at least put down payment in my first place and say, hey, those four years of jobs was worth it. Something to build on. That was my first chance at building a nest egg.
1: Yeah. Although maybe you should have held it on for an extra two days. Yes.
0: Yeah. So yeah. the, the story about the extra two days. The stock price just went double the next two years. And, and it took me 10 years to <laughs> to invest <laughs> or hard investing to to, you know, if I just had kept it for two more days, it could have 10 years of investing. I couldn't sleep for a week, but it's all relative. That was my first million. So, yeah. Wow.
1: So you end up going to Maxis and then to Yahoo. And you were doing roughly, I think, the same thing. You were the head of the mobile. For each of these companies? Yeah.
0: The yeah. So at job that I was doing essentially not mobile, but generally the internet business as a whole. But Maxis was about young days of mobile internet. Those days was about ringtones and, and so on. You know, we have a few entrepreneurs in that space. I know there's a guy called Tan Sui Yong who created this company called Unreal Mind. He's an angel investor now. So that was also a bit of a go-go days for the mobile guys. Fortunately, unfortunately, I was on the corporate side, meaning I was on the Maxis side, I was on the Yahoo side. Great experiences for me because getting into the mobile industry from the outside suddenly opened my eyes up and it was was uncanny. Even before Android was launched, I could predict that there was a need for something like Android. Sometimes when you immerse yourself in a particular industry, you suddenly draw parallels. This is the easiest parallel. For me, it was a no-brainer. Like, oh, okay, the mobile industry, what's wrong with it? Oh my gosh, for every game you want to launch, you have to have 20 different versions. People like Yong were like crazily creating one game for Nokia Series 20, Nokia Series 40, Nokia Series 30. It's sustainable. But there's parallels. That's why PC industry, what made it was the operating system. It was Windows. That was the thing. So you need to win the operating system game. And there's no operating system that dominated. Even Nokia were just churning out operating system after operating system. I wanted to participate in that to create that OS for mobile as Microsoft did it for PC.
1: Was there a reason why you didn't go into it?
0: I think because radio came into play. I was at Yahoo and ah, the kind of things that we were doing did not move the needle. It was like, oh, mobile ringtones. And I was like, my gosh, there's something bigger here. But unfortunately, I wasn't close enough and I should have maybe, but that was the time I had a young family. Maybe I should have just kind of like stuck my head out a little bit more and say, hey, I want to go to Sunnyvale. I want to meet people who can talk about this. But interestingly, as I was about to leave Yahoo, I noticed that, Google started already putting out mm-hmm. recruitment advertisements for people to join their mobile unit. And that was a, the time I knew, my gosh, I think Google's onto it.
1: Was Yahoo the place where you realized that product was one of the most important things? I think Decker came and it really changed your mind realizing yeah. oh. that you have to really have something that people want.
0: Yeah. So the value that Sudha brought to the table, Sudha was a CFO of Yahoo at the time. Mm-hmm. And she came to Singapore and everyone was like preparing for a visit. And we were putting out numbers for her. We we're putting out presentations on our quarterly reports, etc. How are we doing financially and all that. For the first 20 minutes, she humored us and let us sort of present all these things and how our sales are doing. Everyone's trying to impress our sales. And it was amazing because she turned around and said, actually, thank you for this presentation, folks. But I think the first thing is just to be clear, all these financials and all that, I appreciate it. But at the end of the day, I got your back. I'm the CFO. I'm going to talk to Wall Street and I'll handle these guys. You don't have to worry about these things. What team are you in? You're a product team, right? Okay. I want you, as a product teams not to worry too much about sales numbers, but I want you to worry about what products will make Yahoo to its former glory as a number one portal or whatever products it is in five years' time. I want you to worry about the products that we can produce from now so that we're on a good street in five years' time. What are the products that will make Yahoo in five years' time? And to see a CFO do that and just to say, hey, don't worry about the numbers, guys. You focus on what you're good at, which is product, and concentrate on that because we're depending on that and let me worry about Wall Street. That was amazing. I was in Maxis at the time, before that, and CFOs were not talking like that. CEOs were not talking like that. Shareholders were not talking like that. And here you have a CFO who was talking like that. And I think that was, to me, the biggest eye-opener in terms of if you want to do some of these things, think about the product. And it's true. These days, when you create a product, the product will sell itself. The necessary condition is the product must be good. Then you add your marketing, etc. But your product's lousy. In the day of social media, where people just kind of use your products almost overnight, if it's good, product now is to me the number one competitive thing that you have in your marketing arsenal.
1: So what was the impetus that pushed you from working at Yahoo to starting BFM in September 2008?
0: I got fired. Oh, no. (laughs) Actually, I got fired three times in a row. I say this because I was comforting someone who got fired yesterday and saying it was his first time. And I said, look, I got fired three times. It kind of like shocked him. And that was good. I was fired from Axis. I was fired from Yahoo. And I think I know why. Yahoo, I realized what it was. I'm not a good upward communicator. I'm so used to running, like, for example, my KL classifieds and being responsible for the whole company that sometimes when I work for corporations, I assume that, okay, this is my department. I run it the way I want to, et cetera, and I don't communicate what we're doing. But in corporates, you need to know what other people are doing because your boss will ask, hey, what's your underling Malik Ali doing? I don't know. (laughs) You know, Oh. he doesn't give me any reports, he just does it. And so it gets everyone uncomfortable uh, that you people don't know. So I realize that's one of those things that I don't communicate well. Frequently I don't sit down, my supervisor, cetera, and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Da, 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 da. And I think all these are good stuff. I didn't do it. So because of that, I think people kind of like, when you don't know, you assume the worst. And sometimes things don't go out to plan. And yeah, a couple of things didn't go to plan. So that's one thing I've learned. So I was asked to leave from Yahoo as well and Maxis. But there's also another element as well, is that I'm more of a thinker than operational person. My relative advantage, if you were to put me side by side with someone who is just naturally more process-oriented, more operational, I'll lose out for sure. My comparative advantage is sort of in a way being able to think faster Five years down the road. And that's why Sudeka really touched me because I really think five years down the road, what will things happen? And sometimes you're a bit early, but I'll give you an example. And Max is together with Datuk Jamal, who after a while gave up on this idea that, hey, it's about building the ecosystem of content providers. Guess what Apple's doing now with the iTunes store? That's your content providers. So basically, you are building that up. Whereas at Max's, the CEO bang on the table and said, why are we giving 70% of any revenue that comes through mobile ring tours to these content providers? We should have 50%. Bring it up to 70%. maxis should get more. This is the ecosystem. I cannot compete with 200 teams out there. I have only one team competing with 200 teams. Why don't we create the platform for them so that those 200 teams work for us? Yes, we get a smaller revenue share. So that kind of thinking, and Yahoo, it was more that Android thing, mobile rentals. It's just a waste of time, guys. We should be focusing on, on operating systems. The Koreans are almost on it. Let's not take resources for South Asia for them. Let's pass it to the Koreans. So I didn't fight for resources for South Asia. The Koreans needed it. So I realized that this sort of thinking element is my strong suit, but... In an execution-oriented organization or organization is going through an execution phase, to see someone a bit, a bit professor-like <laughs> walking the hallway, it's like the red flag to a lot of people.
1: So when you started BFM, I think the radio ecosystem then was like the blue ocean, like there was no one else. It was more entertainment, more music, and you saw that gap that you wanted yeah. to fill. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I realized now after going through three rounds of things, I realized I don't have strong execution skills. I was lucky in the fact that there were a few people who turned up at my doorstep and said, Malik, I want to work with you. And they were great. A lady called Aileen. I said, Malik, I'll organize your sales force. I'll do this because I love the station and I want to do this. So she created the structure for my sales force. She, she helped me hire a sales head who today is still with us, Charles Peters. She helped me hire him. I remember the first two years of BFM, I feel myself going down this rabbit hole again. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is execution. The clients want you to follow up every day and your follow-up skills is terrible. So I was really struggling for the first two years. But thankfully, Island came on board and through Ireland I had Charles and Charles trained the team. So now we have a great, great team.
1: Do you form BFM and what it was going to be based on any existing radio platform that was out there? Because I think that you were drawing um, from like radio presenters and business journalists, right? So the kind of talent you had was not quite suited to what you were thinking.
0: Yeah, it was just common sense, really. I think if mm. I wanted to do a talk radio station, we can't talk about sex, can't talk about <laughs> politics. At a time. Now we can. So what can we talk about? We can talk about business. The Edge had launched by then already. In fact, The Edge were my first investors in my classifieds business. And The Edge was going like, okay, when we follow the money, we can talk about politics. I mean, follow the money, 1MDB, actually you're talking about (laughs) politics. Because usually when you follow the money, and it's in politicians' pockets. Money drives politics, unfortunately. If you look around the world, business journalism actually are sometimes the one that actually are the financial times of the world, etc. They're the ones that when they follow the money, you find crooked politicians. So that was inspiration to say, okay, business can be a topic that we can talk about. It doesn't have to be boring. It can be interesting. It can be entertaining. And the reason why we didn't call it Business FM was there was a plan B, right? If business didn't work out, we could just change it to a music station and call it BFM, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: I think it's important for people to know that you didn't just jump into it without thinking. You actually ensured that you had a buffer for yourself and your family for like a couple of years. Yeah.
0: Yeah, every time I start a business, I'm going to have at least two years worth of being able to live without any income and just put two years worth aside. And lucky with Job Street, etc., and some investments, I put two years worth of household expenses aside, and I put eight hundred thousand ringgit on my own money yeah. into BFM. I only wanted to put about three hundred thousand, but my fellow shareholders know me too well. He was K.E.A. came hey mother, you come on, I want it to be a bit painful for you if this doesn't work." <laughs> out, right?
1: Okay, but I mean, yeah, in the end, you, you raised like 4.2 from all your other investors. And what yeah, I noticed was very interesting is that these were people that you have known and have followed you throughout your career. So clearly you have that established relationship and they really trust and believe in you as a person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so it was a long time. I'm like, hey guys, are you in or out, right? There was a worry because I mean, mm. remember, I was asked to leave Job Street. I mean, this was when I was passing around the hat for the money. And there was kind of like a pause. There was kind of like hesitancy. I'm like mm, Because they know me well. And there was one investor, uh, her name is Lucy. She's the wife of another Job Street guy, Suresh. And she says, Look, Mali has left Job Streets about six years ago. People grow and people learn, they find themselves a little bit more. I use this as my mantra for even our employees and so on. Just because someone may have failed at things or not been good at competent something a certain number of years ago, it doesn't mean that they haven't grown since then. You can't have that first impression and so on. So this is where I think one of my investors, Lucy, said, hey, Malik might have grown. And if we can help him, encourage him to get an execution-oriented person to work with him, then maybe we have something here. And that's what happened. So it wasn't an automatic money in the hat. There was a bit of a hesitancy. I'm like, mm-hmm. and then someone had to stump up for me. And I was like, okay, he's a good guy. At least you get the integrity part. It's just whether you can get the execution part. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. so you had the 5 million. What was your plan in terms of deploying it?
0: Yeah, so it was just basically operational and marketing to a certain extent. But again, I learned from job days not to spend too much. If you have a marketing budget that you want to launch something, my first venture, Cal Classified, I would spend 80% of it upfront. 20% of it as maintenance marketing. But that experience told me that actually it should be the other way around. You spend 20% of it upfront and then you save 80% because it's a marathon. It's not a race. So you need that maintenance. And after a while, interestingly, BFM got to know a little bit more. And then we became our own marketing channel.
1: So what was your cat or cost per acquisition at the time?
0: I don't use those metrics. To be honest, I find digital marketing very mind-blowing. I'm not a details guy, so I I rely on people to help me. So to me, marketing is all about directional. Is it directionally positive or directionally negative? And even until today, I, I can get really lost in the details. And I always want to surface up and say, directionally, guys, has this been a good campaign or not? And I can work with that. So you ask him about examples of a business radio station. You can just give me two words or three words in this case. So there was something called BFM France and they're a business station in France. And you just have to say to me, a French business radio station. And to me, building a product out of those four words, it comes easily to me. It's just one of those things. I just need a few words to understand. I can visualize what it can be. I remember going for one talk on agile product development, and I would just sit down in one talk. And then it crystallizes. Concepts are very easy for me. I can take three words and build a whole scenario, a whole product out of it or a whole company out of it. So that was it. I know there was a radio station in France called BFM. I, I didn't have to look at the programming for BFM in France. It just came, okay, we need the breakfast grill in the morning. We need CEO interviews in the morning. For sure, right? Who do you want to listen to? Who else do you want to listen to? Yeah, you need math commentaries. You need this. You need that, da, 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 that kind of thing. And you just pick out a few things. CNBC does this, da, 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 that kind of thing. So just synthesizing everything. I enjoy I enjoy it. So
1: before we go into the details of how you planned your program, I think one of the yep. biggest challenges you faced was getting a dormant frequency to be granted to you. Yep. And you had to petition to Tan Sri Lim Keng Yek for it. Can you yep. share a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so I think I went to the licensing department of MCMC and they said, fantastic concept. All the commissioners love the concept, Alec. Unfortunately, we don't have any frequencies.
1: But um, why? Uh, that, that was yeah. so strange. Like, it's dormant.
0: No, because I think they already assigned it to a licensee who has been sitting on it for two years. I haven't raised the money or not enough time. They choked the frequency first, right? So I went back to my partners and said, hey, they like the idea, but they can't get the frequency. Then someone said, hey, actually, I'm one degree removed from the minister. I know his son, and maybe we can arrange a meeting so he can meet, answer himself, and present. And so that's what happened. I met Lincoln Gate and told him, I guess, before he passed away. And he said, "Okay, great idea, but I cannot give you a full English one. I have to give you seventy percent English and da, da 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 kind of. Okay, I'll live with that. So that's still happened. Got the frequency, and that's the only frequency that we've gotten in our whole radio thing. I've been trying for the last ten years to get more. It's just a brick wall.
1: Can you share a little bit for those who don't understand how radio works, like why frequency is so important, why you can't be in other places like East Malaysia, Penang, for instance?" Mm-hmm
0: radio operates on certain airway. When you go on your car and put in 89.9, you're getting uh, a frequency 89.9, which we are transmitting on from Genting Highlands. But there's only so many kilometers it covers. I think it it's about a 60 or 70 kilometer radius. Once you pass that radius, you need to transmit from another tower, ideally from the same frequency, but usually not. You need this frequency to be able to beam to you. Your radios are already connected to these frequencies. Without those frequencies, we cannot reach you. In Malaysia, I guess, it's quite crowded. But the frustrating thing is that if you really want to do it, you can. Fundamentally, a new station comes out, you give them this. It's not optimized. You can go around and say, Hits. if you reduce by 0.1, BFM, you increase another frequency, we can space out everyone. Plus, we have another four extra ones. It can be done. It's just a lot of work and a lot of unhappy people. You, you have Astro going, Hey, our listeners know us to this frequency. Why do you have to give it up? Hey guys, don't worry. You're so famous. Hits is so famous. Don't worry. People will find you, whether you are 92.9 or 93.0.
1: I wanted to talk about the programs and how you started BFM because I understand you opened up with the morning run with the breakfast grill. And yes. at the time, the Lehman Brothers collapsed, but you just didn't have the resources to cover that. So what was those early mm-hmm. days like?
0: usually frustrating. So Lehman was going down, the news was all over and there was only a dozen of us. We had one presenter. Today we have at least four, five, one presenter, one producer on the show and, and we couldn't really cover it well and our news team was just like three people or four people strong. We did a breakfast grill interview with One of the Arts. I'm like, "Oh, here we are doing someone who is okay, fine entertainment business, but Lehman's going down, Rome is burning." But credit to the team. I mean, nothing that can be done about it, just the timing thing. But it worried me. What worried me was the fact that, hey, every time I start a business, it seems to be some sort of financial crisis. So the first one was KL Classifieds. So we had the Asian financial crisis. And then I was with Job Street. We had those dot-com crisis. I started BFM and then 11 days later, Lehman went down. So here's a tip, guys. Every time I start a new business, you can, you know, just um, sell your shares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call it a market signal. What worried me the most was the fact that, again, these were KL Classifieds. You had global financial crisis, people not buying advertisements, etc. I had a house in Malaysia and I sold it just in case that I had to put in more money. So I've asked all the investors at the time, I always put $5 in first, but reserve another $2.5 million in case something happens. So I sold it so that I can pay for if BFM needed the cash. But thankfully, that crisis did not impact Malaysia so hard. The property market went roaring, man, after that in 2009. And I'm like going, oh no, here again. It's not as bad as that two days thing. But no, literally, it was like if I had waited another two months, the property would be in four hundred thousand ringgit more. And it's like, ah, here we go again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Always
1: <laughs> ignore oh, no, uh, your first instincts
0: <laughs> Yeah I don't sell anymore <laughs> just, That's my learning So yeah So I think that's what happened And we were lucky we, we got cash flow break even, Which is a great milestone In any business When the business pays for itself
1: Yeah um, within like 18 um, months Or something Like really really quickly It was
0: like Two and a half years Two and, mm. and a half years yeah. We yeah. went down to our from Five million We went down to our last 500,000 ringgit Wow. So well, we used up four point five million, and then stayed at five hundred thousand, and then and it went up again.
1: So how were you generating profit from BFM? I, I think you were getting like a lot of interest from like Malaysia Airlines, who were willing to sponsor right from the get-go, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Indy Nair, She was the head of communications at MES at the time. She wanted first to suss me out. So we had a meeting in my office. Studios is a very sort of rudimentary place. So she came in and, and wanted to suss me out. Thought I was genuine and then said, all right, now what can you do for us? So we came up with some interesting campaigns, playing with a BFM acronym, a competition to say what acronym that you can do to a BFM acronym that you can relate to flying, for example. So we had things like Baltic Flying Maidens and Da, 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 da. best flying machines. So I had some fantastic support from Indy and, and MAS, I had fantastic support from CIMB, who sponsored our first breakfast grill and did sponsor for the next four or five years, which was wonderful. So that gave us momentum. From our first year, I think we earned about 700,000 ringgit. Second year is about 1.7. We probably needed about two, two and a half to break even in, in those early days. I was very proud of it because Job Street was a, a team effort. Everyone did that and it became successful. And I don't think I had much to do with that. But with BFM, I've never created something where it could stand on its own feet after a while and pay for itself. So that restored my confidence. You remember the three previous jobs I had, I was getting like, sorry, you're out. So there was a bit of a confidence issue, right? I was like, yeah, I know I can't manage well. I know I'm an execution-oriented person. Gosh, BFM would be a disaster because of me as well. But thankfully, managed to learn from all those mistakes. The, The true sense of accomplishment was when BFM broke even and could pay for itself.
1: Was that the point where you realized that BFM could be or was in fact a success already?
0: I think maybe a couple of years later, it was just more the sense of relief that this could pay for itself. And I'm wondering,
1: yeah. as you're incorporating all these sponsors, do you ever feel that you had or were compromising your editorial integrity in some way?
0: Never. Yeah. Don't do harakiri. Like, for example, if someone was sponsoring a show and they say, oh, I want to go on the breakfast grill and they want to buy advertising as well. You know what? Actually, our editorial team will probably do a really hard grill on this one. Then you just say, look, why don't you do the editorial part? Maybe... Nine months later, a year later, don't do it now. Do your advertising now. Like, <laughs> then we can really grill you in nine months' time. Don't kind of like put everything together and someone be advertising and then you grill them like hell. That's not smart.
1: Have you ever heard so, issues where people come and they are grilling in a way that they don't expect?
0: Oh, yeah. We've had people walk out, even as recently as a couple of months ago. So people do walk out. That's why we like live grills. You can't walk out.
1: But I think also in Malaysia, there are certain boundaries that you have to adhere to regardless. Like I was speaking to Dr. Jason Leong. He said that we used to have to adhere to the four R's, like royalty, religion, race, and Rosma. I don't know how true that is right now.
0: I think uh, religion and royalty. I think there was a recent incident where even religion in the business context was tough I mean we asked about it was an awkward question about okay this you know when you pay zakat which is um, arms you can get tax relief on it and there's no limit I think to that tax relief if you pay a million ringgit in zakat you can get a million ringgit tax relief Mm -hmm. Uh, and we just asked about that and we got called out for it wow Uh, yeah, so even the business context. Oh, yeah, another one, the, the obvious ones is like when we are interviewing one of the brewery companies on the Breakfast Grill, and, and you talk about financials, and then we get little weird ruling that says only non Muslim presenters can interview breweries even on the Breakfast Grill. I'm like, really? Seriously? Yeah, come on, let's be real. I've been in conversations where people are trying to figure out how to restructure MAS. The biggest thing that the board is worried about is how to tell people out there that they're not to sell alcohol on MAS flights. The issue wasn't about MAS losing money hand over fist. It's about alcohol being sold on MAS flights. So at the end of the day, I think Kazana at the time said, okay, the compromise is we won't sell alcohol in domestic flights. That took 200 hours of management time.
1: And to what extent do you listen to people giving feedback? Because I noticed like BFM on Instagram, you're always asking people questions, asking the feedback. So to what extent do you take on board and change the way you run things?
0: I think it's very serious. And I try to use the marketer's ear there's a lot of noise in the feedback, sometimes a lot of anger, there's a lot of emotion. When people give feedback, it's because they feel something and they really want to vent. It can be good, it can be bad. And this is where I wear my marketing hat and say, look, try to look through the eyes of that individual. Don't take everything too much at face value, but try to understand what's behind that feedback. The best kind of things I've seen is when we have a really rough feedback and people respond. And then what comes back is amazing because that person explains her position and then we truly understand it. What I find Malaysians doing is that when we get negative feedback, we just kind of keep quiet and don't respond. Respond late. Positive feedback, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Negative feedback is like, oh, quick, keep quiet. And I think that's really difficult.
1: So it's been 12 years since BFM was launched. What do you think are the big milestones?
0: I think the big milestones is the fact that we had a change of government, which opened up the floodgates for media. I think that was a huge milestone. The genie's out of the box. I hope it's the genie's out of the box and can't go back in. I really sincerely hope that. If it's pre-2018, all media was hush-hush and hush, you know, kind of thing. And only the edge was going all out. And we were picking our battles. And some battles, we were also being quite vocal. There was always this element of dancing, pushing and pulling back. It's like fishing. You pull it back. You let your reel go and pull it back. Now it's almost like free-for-all. So I think that was a watershed in terms of media. And I think that was the milestone for me.
1: Do you have any particularly memorable interviews you've done that really stay with you? I haven't
0: done any. Yeah, I don't do interviews. All the interviews are done by presenters. I did one with Stephen Gunn, I remember, on a special day of the editor for Malaysia Kini. Occasionally, I, I do one kind of thing, but it's more like for fun rather than anything else. You get lots of clues about people when we interview them or the process of interviewing them uh, on Breakfast Grill, whether they're businessmen or politicians. I, I can tell you, Lim Kok Wing always sets up the interviews and always cancels, and we never interviewed him. Three, four times, we've interviewed so-called famous politicians right now. One of them, everything has to be scripted. Cannot do anything outside of script.
1: Oh, uh-huh. right?
0: Yeah, very insecure. And you like go, oh, okay. Another one requires an entourage to greet her at the bottom of our lobby before she will come up. All these sort of things, you get real clues about people. And then you get someone like Idris Jala, who turns up 20 minutes before his minder stand turned up. And he has only one minder. And he turned up 20 minutes beforehand. So you're like, okay, this is a good guy. Uh, <laughs> this is a nice change. There. He turns up before his minder, before his PR person or whatever. And it's wonderful. You can really see through people when they come up for the Breakfast Glow interview.
1: So where do you think BFM is going to head to it? You're very heavy on the digital side. So do you think that's the future?
0: Yeah. Particularly to deliver audiences who are working professionals. I think wherever they are, that I means not just on BFM. If they're on social media, on LinkedIn, we should be there with them, reaching out to them on LinkedIn, reaching out to them on Facebook or Instagram and so on. Right? So that working professional crowd, too. And then to reach out to pockets of other sort of groups. We have a program called Roommate, which reaches out to younger adults on their personal finance. We have another show called Adulting. So it's about people getting their first jobs, etc. So reaching out to new demographics, new media consumers. But the core will be that sort of working professional group. Do
1: you feel that eventually radio would be obsolete and we would go more to this digital? I mean, like even now you have difficulty going to places like PNM, whereas if it's a podcast, you just need that link and you can access it anywhere, anytime.
0: Yeah, I think radio is a bit of a shortcut for now, meaning Mm. that you're in your car in a traffic jam. Whereas in podcast, there's Joe Rogan and then there's you. There's there's a huge number. So you're like, wow, how do you do this? And and basically, I think podcast is about developing that very special tribe of yours that love your stuff. I think there's always a room for radio because people want to know what's current. What is my neighbor talking about? When I get to the office today, what can we commonly talk about? Whereas if you're on your own podcast world, you can talk about your podcast, but there's none of that linkages. Podcasts have to be more than catch-up radio. We started BFM Podcasts since day one and so far been about catch-up radio. Whereas this podcast, the one that you're doing, it's not catch-up radio. It is a podcast and you produce it and you put your sound elements to it. And I have to compliment you for it. It sounds really slick. sounds really good. Thank you. So podcast will have its own thing. I think we have to think more about that, about creating just something purely for podcasts, because podcasts are one-on-one, which is what radio seems to be. But actually, podcast is truer in that sense.
1: So you are no longer full-time at BFM because you end up starting FireLife, where you are now, yeah. in September 2018. So how do you decide to move into that new space
0: in fact, it came from an advertiser on BFM. In my 40s, I actually, for the first time, I was really confused actually about my own financial, I, I was always an investor, but my own financial planning. I remember, so jobs were listed and I'm like thinking, okay, now I have this nest egg. What do I do with this nest egg, right? So I went and spoke to bankers, etc. Everyone who came back to me was selling product. Everyone. Remember I told you about being suspicious about people who try to sell you things and all that? That spider sense came out strong. The more prestigious the organization, like private banker and all that, the more the radar went out. It's like, oh yeah, here's a single premium insurance. You put $1 million in this insurance policy. You're like, what? Yeah, you get this, 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 this. What's going on? So actually I realized that the whole thing with this so-called wealth management, you've got to watch out because it's about selling products most of the time. And I think when... A company called U4 Life came into the market and started saying things like, Hey, here's just pure insurance. If something happens to you, this is one million ringgit for your family. A very simple thing. It's not linked to this, there's no complications, there's no allocated, unallocated premium, there's no administration fees, there's no surrender value, cash value, and all that. It's a clean thing. I'm like, damn, I should have done this. But never mind. But You for Life, I guess they ran into a bit of problems. I think they went and did a marketing blitz, spent the 80%. Oh no. (laughs) 80% up front. And then you're 20% trying to run on the marathon on 20% less fluids. And I guess by the time they got to that 20%, they said, oh my gosh, would anyone like to buy us? So I caught wind of it. I said, okay, we'll buy you out. And then I flipped it. We do our marketing, but the most important thing is product. And let's save the 80% for the marathon. And so it is a marathon right now.
1: So for those who are looking for insurance, you cut out the middleman, you just go straight to Fire Life And it's a very simple plan that people don't have to yeah. really think too much about.
0: Yeah. So essentially, if you're 21 years old and you don't have any dependents, your parents don't depend on you, you're still staying in their house, you don't need life insurance. Of course, you need medical, maybe a personal accident, but you don't need life insurance when you have dependents. So when someone depends on you, something happens to you. Or if you have to support yourself, God forbid, you, you get yourself involved in an accident and you need funds to take care of yourself. But otherwise, if you don't have any dependents, no need to come to buy life or any other insurance. So that is the premise. If you don't have independence, dependents, invest. Invest it. It's about buying appropriate insurance for yourself. If you need it, for sure. If you don't need it, don't. And then investing for your retirement. But the mantra that we have is buy term life, which is a simple form of insurance, and invest the rest. I have three children... And if something were to happen to me, and if I just had small savings, my wife would not be able to support them. So what do I do? I get insurance to make sure that I can pay for their education, their living expenses, until they become independent when they're working on their own. My youngest child is 13 years old, that's another seven years. If my youngest child is just one year old, that's another... 23 years. So you buy insurance for that period. You see things like insurance which is tied into investments and then some portion of your money is being used for insurance, some portion of your money is being used for investments. Actually, for the most part, you get the worst of both worlds. You don't have the flexibility. Buy the most cost-efficient life insurance for yourself if you have dependents and then There are a myriad of investment opportunities out there, including all the robo-advisors, including all the unit trusts. You can withdraw your money at any time without any penalty. It's complete flexibility. So why are you tying down yourself to something that locks you in for the next 20, 30 years?
1: And I think for those who want to understand a bit more about your investment strategy, FireLife actually did a blog post on your approach, which they can go and
0: read up. Yeah, my risk profile is very, very aggressive. I think you should go for what you're comfortable with. We have a series called I'm Azran Rani and this is how I invest. And I am Frida Liu and this is how I invest. We have that series. So you can actually have a little bit of a window into how people invest. And so you can pick up some points from there.
1: This is 2020. How has COVID impacted you and your industry?
0: I think the revenues, the industry will go down by at least 30, all the way down to 50%.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. So that's the kind of fall that you see in the industry. Those who have cash reserves and the Astros of the world, the media primas are okay. The stars are okay. So basically, it's a question of weathering this time. So you have basically one major player, the Astro with like over 70% market share. Then BD Prima was about sort of 15 to 20% market share, and then everyone else takes scraps. So the industry has consolidated. So in a way, it's just a question of whether you can withstand that 30 to 50% fall in revenues. BFM, we were lucky. Again, I can't emphasize enough what that Asian financial crisis did to me. I always kept uh, a big buffer of cash within BFM. I don't know why, it was just instinctive. It's the comfort of having cash in the bank for a company to tide over difficult times. And the difficult times have happened and continue to happen. I think we can safely say that we saw the recovery in August, September, but I think we're going to get another dip again.
1: So one of the things I noticed that was very interesting for me is that you have done so many startups and I noticed that each time you always have investors in it as opposed to going down the bookstrapping route. I wonder why that is because I know a number of founders who... Say they are bootstrapped as a matter of pride almost, but you've gone a different way.
0: Maybe I'm impatient. I want the business to either prove or not prove itself within the first three, four years. Otherwise, I can only do one startup. My window is about five years and you can really give it a decent go if you have a bit of capital behind you to nudge it along. Remember, there's 20%, 80% rule. You have 80% that you can nudge it along and you have another 80 to continue nudging it along. Otherwise, you don't know. Did I not get there because I didn't have the resources to nudge it enough? So the other thing is that once you get capital from someone else, you tend to have immediate validation. If someone doesn't want to invest in you, you know immediately that this business idea might not be as strong as you thought it was. But once people are excited to invest in you, then you say, oh yeah, there's some legs here. So in a way, it's an external validation. So I think bootstrapping is okay especially if you're testing. Once you're onto a solid thing, there's no point in bootstra- bootstrapping anymore. It's time to raise some capital, not in crazy type things. I've been there before during the dot-com days, crazy money dangling around. But I've learned that whatever you do, don't throw it all on marketing, don't throw it all on customer acquisitions. You have a marathon to do. Uh, it's, it's a marathon.
1: And for those listening, is there anything that they can do to help you?
0: <sighs> so I would love to talk to folks who have influence in school. There's 10,000 schools in Malaysia and actually the plan is already there. McKinsey has gone in and their global leader for education is based in Kuala Lumpur. Those guys know what needs to be done to the Malaysian education. They wrote the national education blueprint. We're just not implementing it. So what would it take? I mean, my wish is to have change managers, get involved, get their hands dirty and reform the Malaysian education system and be given and be empowered. So you're the people that can do this, go for it and we'll leave you alone. And we can change these 10,000 schools. CIS and Amir is doing it for about 50 schools or 100 schools. There's Teach for Malaysia that's doing a few things, but all these are like sporadic. We have the people, we just need green light to do these things. If there are people listening, we have the similar vision of actually helping future Malaysians in education, helping the current population in social housing even things like having a way of distributing i mean we had this initiative about putting 50 ringgit in people's e-wallets and so on hey that that opens up huge possibilities and again like being able to like say hey to everyone you that that is the beginnings of a social security system another one give you an example pnb or epf can create can make sure that can insure people so that, hey, if something happens to them and you can automatically do this, how many children they have, etc. The moment you can just say, okay, out of EPF, we're going to take out 300 ringgit a year to pay for a 200,000 ringgit insurance policy on your life in case something happens to you, your EPF account will be topped up by 200,000 and be given to your folks. So these are some of the ideas that can be done. I'll be honest, I I won't get my hands dirty until my youngest child is 18 years old. And that's about five years time. And then I'll get stuck in on all, all the other projects.
1: I've noticed there's a lot that's written about you. Can you share one thing that people don't know about you in the media yet?
0: I think I told you, right? I got fired three times in a row. Sorry, four times. The first one ever was when I was uh, working in a wine bar in London. And that was, I was completely shell-shocked after being fired up because I wasn't very good at wine bartending and I was walking home tail between my legs and it was like the worst day of my life. But that made me very hardy about getting fired three more times. <laughs> so sometimes it's just a question of, hey, you're uh, a square peg, round hole. I remember the CEO of Maxis at the time, the Singaporean, said to me, Malik, everyone thinks about going right. You always think about going left. And I remember saying to him, yes, but that's why I was employed. That's why I got the job, because I think left. Yeah, I think that's one fresh piece of thing that you didn't know about. I think also you had a few nuggets about choosing between my parents.
1: <laughs> so thank you so much <laughs> for your time. I normally like to end of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is, do you feel like you have found your
0: why? Yeah, I think so. The next five years will be one, one of the whys, which is my children. But after that, it's my second why. is my fellow Malaysians.
1: Uh, what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind?
0: It doesn't matter. We'll be dust. It's not a relevant consideration.
1: And what do you think are the most important qualities a person should have to be as successful as you?
0: First, I guess, I, I, I don't consider myself successful, successful. But resilience, I think being able to be, be positive, seeing good in people. There's also something I saw on a Netflix, Netflix show, sure, I can't remember, but it's about curiosity. If you're not curious, you, you don't learn. I mean, I always enjoy being curious and I think it didn't kill the cat, that's for sure. But it did open up my eyes to a lot of things, being curious about things. And if you could always have that curiosity, I think you'll always be interested. You'll always be engaged with the world.
1: And where can people go to connect with you and follow what you're doing?
0: Probably the best place is LinkedIn. So you go to LinkedIn and then slash IN, I think, and then slash Malik Ali. As easy as that. I've been talking about some of these things, about some of my future projects that I like to get involved with. Big hints. So uh, on that. It has stuff on Fi right now, my current projects it has stuff on BFM and probably has this podcast after you've done it. So, so there we are.
1: And that was the end of episode 24. The show notes can be found at so this is my forward slash 24, including the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. If you want to be alerted to new episodes and be further inspired by other stories, projects, and initiatives outside this podcast, then head over to the show notes and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting an inspiring man from Hong Kong who went blind at the age of six but never allowed that to stop him. Define society's expectations that as a blind man, He could only ever be good for working as a telephone operator or a fortune teller. He went on to become the first of many things. One of the first blind persons to attend University of Hong Kong, followed by London School of Economics, passed the Hong Kong government's recruitment exams and has taken the lead in many things, including being on the board of Oxfam International, president of the Hong Kong Blind Society, founder of Dialogue in the Dark and the climate change platform for youth advocates. To learn more about this inspiring person's story, tune in next Sunday. See you then.